This reading comes from 2 Kings, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. So page 179 in the Bibles there, the, the Blue Bibles, which, um, as usual, if you don't have a Bible of your own and would like to take that, that's our gift to you. So please feel free to follow along. As that's, uh, well, JR will be referring to that. So... Chapter 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thank you, Roz. Well, let's pray as we come to the Lord's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this great treasure of your Word. Lord, as we explore this passage this morning, God, may you give us soft hearts, open ears, open minds, to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, long live the Queen. So the saying goes. Uh, And it seems, in the case of our current Queen... I say our because we are part of the British Commonwealth. Those words have 
seem to have something in them. Queen Elizabeth II, the current Queen of the British Commonwealth, is now the longest reigning monarch in history. And we are not just talking about the longest reigning British monarch. The, 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 she is the longest reigning of any king or queen. This is her at her coronation day on June the 2nd, 1953. And during that day, the then 25-year-old, she had to make certain pledges to the people, to the kingdom with which she was about to preside over. The Archbishop of Canterbury read out to her and asked her to commit to these things. And her response to them as part of the ceremony was, The things which I have here promised, I will perform and keep. So help me God. In an, a, like a proper accent, obviously. That was her commitment to the people, to her uh, office of being the queen. And not only did the queen have to commit to her people, the people themselves were also required to pay homage to the queen, to show their commitments to her. And the way they did that was by the archbishop then turning to each section of the crowd in Westminster Abbey and saying these words, Sirs, I here present unto you Queen Elizabeth, your undoubted queen. Wherefore, all you who are come this day to do your homage and service, are you willing to do the same? Your homage, your commitment. To which each section of the crowd would reply, God save Queen Elizabeth. Of course, in our day and age, uh, the Queen, she doesn't really have much real power. Uh, she's really more just a symbol of the kind of power that uh, different rulers and regimes, and in particular, the, the great British kingdom has. Back in Elisha's day, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, kings and queens had far more power than the Queen does today. And just like last week, what we see in this passage is God's sovereignty over yet another king who would take the throne by force amidst bloodshed. But you see, there is a significant difference between the blood that Hazael shed that we saw last week in order to take the crown and the blood that Jehu sheds. The difference is that God actually instructs Jehu to do this in our passage. And so as we contemplate the implications of what God is doing here in this passage, we need to ask ourselves, how should we respond to God's anointed king? How should we respond to God's anointed king? This morning I have three points for you. One, a final anointing. Two, finally vengeance. And three, the final king. And so with our Bibles open, with our hearts and our minds ready, let's get stuck into this text from point number one, a final anointing. In 1 Kings 19, if you were here several months ago, you would know that we preached through this passage. God instructed Elijah on Mount Sinai to anoint three people. Over the course of our series, we've seen two of them be anointed, you know, anointed, quote unquote. We've seen Elisha some time ago, and Hazael we saw last week. And so this, now, in our passage this morning, is the final anointing of the three that God asked Elijah to carry out. 
And interestingly, the anointing of Jehu actually bears some striking similarities to that of Hazael. The two guys are very similar in many ways. They both don't have any royal blood, and they both take the throne by force. But as mentioned, there is a significant difference between the two, which we'll explore further as we work our way through. As as we see in this passage, there is a sense of closure to a longer narrative. This narrative of of, uh, what God is doing in the anointing of his kings. And so, in our passage in verse 1, it opens with Elisha calling one of the sons of the prophets. Uh, These are the disciples that Elisha has been training. We've seen them all the way along. And he instructs him to take up his garment, which is an action uh, that indicates a sense of haste, a sense of wanting to move quickly. Elijah himself did it when he was running away from Jezebel. And he tells him to take this flask that he gives him and to go to Ramoth Gilead. As you can tell, there is an urgency in this task. There is a sense of, of, you need to move quickly. And that is often the case when it comes to the proclamation of the Word of God. And so right here from the outset of our passage, we have yet another reminder to us. As Jesus' disciples, who are tasked to make disciples, that we need to keep investing in those who are coming after us to devote ourselves to the task of training up the next generation. Brothers and sisters, right right here from the outset, let this be a reminder to each of us to keep pursuing Him and and to keep encouraging one another and to boldly take on difficult and challenging tasks for the Lord. Because you see, this task that Elisha is about to give to uh, the son of the prophet, it's not an easy one. He's sending this young disciple to the battlefront. Ramoth Gilead was a contested city between Israel and Syria. Again, in previous passages, we've seen this city pop up as as a city that Syria and Israel warred over and tried to have as their own. At this point in history... It is where a battle is being fought between the two nations. And in verses 2 and 3, we see uh, the instructions that Elisha gives him when he gets there. Let's read them. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. It would be understandable uh, to think that the Jehoshaphat that's mentioned here is uh, none other than King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, mentioned in other parts of this book. However, this Jehoshaphat is not that same one. He is known for nothing else other than being Jehu's dad. We know nothing else about him. Same with Nimshi. But at least now we can draw a bit of a family line to Jehu to know where he comes from. And so Elisha tells this young prophet what to do, which includes some rather curious instructions. He gives him the flask of oil, tells him to take that. And that actually makes sense. Uh, If you look up the anointings by Samuel and Zadok of uh, Saul and David and Solomon to be king, 
you'll see that all of them actually involved a, a flask or a horn of oil, which they poured over those kings to, in order to anoint them as part of the ceremony. But we need to ask ourselves, why would he need to take him, to, to get him to rise from his company and take him to an in, inner room by himself? And why does he need to, as soon as he's done that, open the door and flee? Well, it's worth pointing out here that what this young disciple is about to do is anoint as the new king, as the one who will take the throne, a man who has no royal blood, who is currently fighting wars in submission to the current king, and doing so without the current king's knowledge. That is nothing less than an act of treason, an act of rebellion against the king. And so it seems to me like Elisha is giving him instructions that are probably going to save his life. Once you're done, get out of there, leg it. But what we see here is that God anoints his kings. Kings and regimes might have their own uh, you know, ways of wanting to make sure that their progeny stays on the throne and all of that. But what Scripture teaches us in this passage and throughout is that God is the one who anoints kings. And you know, that's true in a broader sense. It's true in the fact that there is no king, there is no ruler, no president, no global power in the history of humanity that has ever gotten to that position against God's will. Romans 13 makes that clear. But it is also true in this specific sense. Hazael was anointed by God to be king over Syria, just as Jehu is about to be anointed as king over Israel here. God also anoints specifically certain individuals. We see the same thing in Isaiah 45, when he talks about Cyrus, the king of Persia, a global superpower at the time, as his anointed one. And so God anoints kings generally. He, he's the one who is sovereign and ruler over all of them. And sometimes he does that for specific reasons. And sometimes those reasons are revealed to us. And in this case, in the anointing of Jehu, God's purpose is for him to carry out his vengeance. And that brings us to point two. Finally, vengeance. Let's read on from verse four to see what happens here. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council, perhaps as you might expect, in the middle of a war. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, to which of us all? And he said, to you, O commander. The Bible makes a point about this disciple being a young man. You see that in verse 4. Just consider him for a moment. Elisha has given him this instruction. It's one that takes him to a battlefront, takes him to a place where, where the, the, the wars are raging between these two armies. Now, if you've never been to a, a battlefront, which, you know, I haven't, uh, I'm not sure that many of us have, it's not exactly 
a safe space. In such a situation, it would be very easy to be collateral damage in the middle of, of two parties fighting against each other. It would be easy to get caught up in the crossfire and to lose your life. Now think about that for a moment. Elisha has sent this young man to take this message to that situation. That would test the mettle of any person, let alone a young man. And not only is Elisha sending him into the thick of battle, but he's also sending him right into the midst of these battle-hardened guys who are in charge. He's sending this young buck into a room full of warrior bulls, who I'm sure would be intimidating to be in the presence of. And he has sent him to go and deliver a message, a word from the Lord. And yet this young man, he doesn't even flinch. What do you think could give him such courage? I mean, maybe he is shaking in his boots. We don't know. But as I've already noted, he followed through on everything Elisha told him to do. He took up his garment, he ran, he went to the, the battlefront and obeyed. Brothers and sisters, whether you are young or old, strive to live as one who is so confident in the Word of God that if He sent you to a situation where your life was at more risk than it is now, or when He calls you to proclaim His Word to uh, the most intimidating audience, to people who are hostile towards you, who, who don't want to hear what it is that you have to say, strive that you would trust in Him. Trust that you would know the One that is sending you, that you would know what He is sending you into, and know that He will never leave your side. Go boldly in the confidence that God's word is sure and trustworthy and that His Spirit is with you. And especially if you are young, a young disciple like this one was, remember Paul's well-known words to Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Well, for some reason, the commanders in Jehu are happy to do whatever the young man requests. Perhaps he had a reputation as Elisha's disciple, which I think is actually a reasonable guess, given what Jehu says about him later. We'll get to that in the following verses. And by the way, when he says, I have a word for you, uh, just to be clear, this simply means a message. Uh, these days, Christians sometimes use this phrase, I have a word for you, uh, to mean something prophetic, to mean that, that you know, God has given me something to share with you. Uh, in this context, uh, even though it turns out he does actually have a prophetic word for Jehu, uh, to the commander's ears, this simply would have just meant message. I have a message for you, uh, which is why the NIV translates it this way. But speaking of that, there's something that we must not miss about this. Did you notice that Elisha has given this task to one of his disciples? So we are actually now a few degrees removed from the original person who received the instruction from the Lord himself in the first place. 
First, the Lord gave this instruction to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, like we saw. Elijah may or may not have told Elisha about that and told him to carry it out. The Bible doesn't tell us. And now, Elisha is passing this on to a disciple of his to go and proclaim the word of the Lord to Jehu. So if you ever wonder whether some people have some kind of like special authority to tell you God's words, well, wonder no more. The authority of God's Word, it resides in His Word. His Word is what carries the authority. There's a reason why He is called the author. He's the one who wrote it, and His words carry as much weight as if he were speaking directly to you. This is why a last will and testament is considered to be authoritative. Even though the person who wrote it has since deceased, and they're no longer with us, their words in their will carry their authority. It is just as though they themselves were speaking them. And so what this means is that it doesn't matter whether you have other kinds of authority or not. The Bible speaks plainly about other authority, whether that's in the world, whether that's in the church. It exists. But the authority of God's Word is not held exclusively by any of those other leadership positions, by any of those other authorities. And this was actually one of the key issues that brought about the Protestant Reformation. That's something which is uh, appropriate for us to remember, given that today is Reformation Day. For anybody who is not aware, on this day, on the 31st of October in 1517, Martin Luther hammered, nailed his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And part of what he was fighting for was this idea. The Roman Catholic Church maintained that God had given the church authority to speak on God's behalf and especially to do so in the councils and the popes of the church. And they did so by drawing on truths that they claimed came from Scripture and from tradition, tradition which had been passed down through the ages and tradition that had equal authority to Scripture. That was the claim. Whereas Martin Luther, on the other hand, asserted that God's authority rested in the words of Scripture alone. And that all churches and officers and councils and popes, they all must submit to the words of the Bible. He famously declared in a debate with Johann Eck in 1519, a couple of years after he nailed those theses. He said, a simple layman armed with Scripture, is to be believed above a Pope or Council without it. As for the Pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the Church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. That same idea is implicit here in this passage. The anointing of Jehu had authority not because of the messenger, but because of the message. God's authority wasn't in the young man, but in the words that God had entrusted to him. 
And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. We can also speak the words of God, knowing that they are what carry the authority and not us. So when you sit down and when you read Scripture, or when you read Scripture with somebody else, when you quote and apply the Word of God to your life or to somebody else's life, you are sharing the very words of God that have authority over us. Do you have confidence in the Bible? Are you willing to stake your truth claims on thus says the Lord and then open up the pages of Scripture? Wherever the Lord sends you to proclaim His word, be reminded that it and He will never fail you. Because He speaks through His Word. Well, what we see in this next section is uh, certainly longer than what Elisha told his disciple to say in verse 3. Something one of my kids picked up this morning as we read through the passage. Why is, why is that there? He didn't, he didn't tell him that. Again, we don't know whether Elisha actually gave him longer instructions which weren't recorded in our passage, or whether God just spoke directly to the son of the prophet. But either way, the Bible clearly indicates to us that what He speaks truly are the words of God. They are affirmed, they happen, they are fulfilled. And so in the private room, the disciple pours oil on Jehu's head and he says this from verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Talk about ramping up the tension. As I mentioned before, this, this is an act of treason to the, against the king. But the interesting thing about this extended prophecy is that he's actually not saying anything that hasn't already been said. Everything he says there has already been spoken about before. When he says in verse 9 that uh, he will make Ahab's house like that of Jeroboam's, he's saying that because God has actually already done this with Jeroboam. The same thing happened with Jeroboam. Judgment was foretold and judgment was then carried out. You see that in 1 Kings 15, 29. And God's instruction to Jehu and his pronouncement of judgment that we see in verses 7, 8, and 10, to strike down Ahab and Jezebel's house, is actually just a final fulfillment of a prophecy that had already been foretold. Again, we saw this uh, probably a, a couple of months ago. In 1 Kings 21, 21, God pronounced His judgment on Ahab 
that he will cut off his line. And just a couple of verses later, in verse 23, he pronounces judgment on Jezebel. And so what we see here in our passage this morning, in this final anointing that God had commanded Elijah, is the final fulfillment of God's promised judgment on the house of Ahab. And verse 7 describes this as vengeance. It is God's holy wrath against those who commit evil. It is Him receiving the payment for their debt of sin. You know, vengeance these days is, uh, it's not usually talked about as a good or a positive thing, right? Unless you're talking about Batman. And he says, um, vengeance. Everyone thinks that's really cool, you know. But if we think about vengeance normally, usually when we think of it, we think of something which is done out of anger, which is done out of malice, which is done out of uncontrollable rage and wanting to get back at somebody for something that they did to them. And more often than not, vengeance is not something that we think of as, as equal to the crime. But more often than not, if we are talking about vengeance, we envisage in our minds something that goes beyond what somebody actually deserves. Most of the time, that's probably true. Why is it that mobs continue to war against each other? It's because they want, they want their pound of flesh, but really they want two pounds of flesh, and then it just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. But friends, that is not God's vengeance. His is holy and pure and right. And not only that, without God's vengeance, there can be no justice. Look again in verse 7. So that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. There is history here. And just because Jezebel is the only one that is mentioned here, that doesn't mean she was the only one who did wrong. After all, Ahab was described earlier in 1 Kings as the worst of the worst kings of Israel. And so justice was about to be served to Ahab and to Jezebel for all that they did to the Lord, to His prophets, to His servants and in their sin, in leading the whole nation of Israel astray. You see, every sin has a cost. Every offense creates a debt, and it creates a debtor and a creditor. One who must pay the debt, one who must receive it. Now, the creditor may choose to waive the debt, but that would mean that they are absorbing the cost of that debt. The creditor becomes the one who pays it. So it is with God's righteousness. His vengeance being carried out here on the house of Ahab is not unjust, because it is simply God receiving the payment of Ahab's sin debt. And God anointed Jehu here to carry out his will. And in this case, his will 
was to avenge on Ahab and Jezebel and their whole family line for the slaughter of his servants. Now, some would say that here and in other places, the penalty actually really does outweigh the crime. That here, God really is taking the kind of vengeance that we envisage in our minds, the kind where the punishment actually goes beyond what is fair and what is right. Now, there's, there's much to be said about that. But as a basic principle, let me say that it is not the size of the sin that matters, but it is the size of the one sinned against. Think of it this way. If you uh, threw an egg at somebody, they might get a bit annoyed, a bit angry. I mean, if you did it during Halloween, people probably wouldn't notice or care. They'll just think that it's part of it. But if you threw an egg at a police officer while he was on duty, you are liable for up to seven years prison. Although that's, I've been told that from a reliable source that you're actually more likely to probably get nothing. But that does tell you how much more serious the offense is. But you see, if you throw an egg at the queen, then you're looking at six months prison. Now, I'm sure it could actually be a lot more if we're talking about, you know, cops, seven years, queen, surely it's more than that. But I say that because that is exactly what happened to a couple of young women who did that with Queen Elizabeth II when she visited New Zealand in 1986. They threw an egg at her, threw eggs at her, and got six months jail. And if you did that in the Elizabethan era of England in the 1500s, when Queen Elizabeth I was queen, not Queen Elizabeth II's mother, she's not that old, then that likely would have cost you your life. So if we can understand that the same offense is punished differently depending on whom you commit that offense against, then surely... Surely there is room for us to admit that perhaps we can't fathom what would be a just punishment of an offense against an infinite, perfectly righteous God. Surely. God here avenges the house of Ahab's sin on them. And it is through his avenging that he would also bring about salvation for the people of Israel from the worst king in their history. So let me ask you this morning, when you think about God's salvation, when you think about his love and his grace and his mercy, do you think about the fact that a component of that is his avenging of evil. Israel and Egypt. Salvation and vengeance. Israel and Canaan. Salvation and vengeance. And of course, Jesus and sin. God's vengeance is not the opposite of His grace and salvation. 
They are not two competing attributes of God. His grace and His salvation come about in part through His vengeance. And that's because all sin has a cost and somebody must pay it. Consider this through the lens of forgiveness. Forgiveness is such a central part of the Christian faith, which makes sense. It is a core outworking of God's grace. It's a flow-on of the salvation that He shows to us. After all, the message of the gospel is that God has forgiven our sins in Jesus. And so some people think that in order to forgive someone, you know, all you have to do is just forget about what they did, right? That, you know, somebody has committed an offense or sinned against me, and so well, all I've got to do is just say, it's okay, don't worry about it, just brush it off. Some say that if God is truly loving and gracious and forgiving, then He should be able to just wave His hand and make it disappear. The problem with this is that forgiveness always costs. Always. A broken relationship requires somebody to pay the cost of repairing the relationship. And sometimes people don't want to pay it, which is exactly why the hurt continues, which is exactly why relationships continue to drift. But if you've been sinned against and you choose to forgive... You choose to extend that hand of forgiveness to the one who has sinned against you. Then what you are doing is not simply just waving your hand and making it go away. You are absorbing the cost of that offense. To think that sin is costless, to think that offenses are costless, cheapens the seriousness of our sin and it cheapens the cost of forgiveness and it cheapens the holiness of God. Yet some think this way and perhaps we are prone to think this way because we don't often consider the fact that God's forgiveness for our sin meant that someone needed to pay the cost. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus did. Our forgiveness was bought by Jesus' blood. On the cross, He received God's vengeance for our sins so that we could receive His righteousness in return. So that we could have right standing before God. As Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. In Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, he slipped in a detail which would have gone unnoticed if he did not know about it. In one of the scenes where Jesus is being crucified and nailed to the cross, where you see a soldier's hand with a nail ready to hammer it into Jesus' hand, what you actually see is the director's hand, Gibson's hand. And I'm not trying to make a statement about whether Mel Gibson is a Christian or not. But he did that to make the accurate theological point that it was his sin. That it was his sin 
that kept Jesus on the cross. As the song goes, it was my sin. It was my sin that held him there. You see, each of us, having been born in sin, we all naturally reject the Word of God. And we therefore reject Him. This is the reason why Jesus had to come. This is why He had to live the perfect life of obedience that we never could and to die on the cross in our place. He did that so that by putting our faith in Him, His perfectly obedient life and His righteousness could be credited to us and that our sin, which deserves God's vengeance, would be taken on by Him. That, my friends, is the only way, that is the only way that we as finite, sinful human beings could possibly stand before God and be counted as righteous. If you are here this morning, and if you have not put your faith in Jesus, I am so, so glad that you are here with us today. I hope you continue to come. I hope you continue to join with us. But please know that my greatest hope, my greatest hope for you is that you would realize that God's vengeance is not something that is reserved only for the worst of the worst. But that for each of us, no matter how small our sin might be, are deserving of that because we have sinned against the Almighty. But you see, the glory and the good news, the glory and the goodness of the good news is that God not only justly punishes, He not only justly avenges His enemies, like we see so clearly in this passage. No, the, the wonder of the good news, the greatness of the good news is that He saves His enemies. He saves them and He makes them His friends. Even Paul, when he was Saul, when he was jealous, oh, sorry, when he was zealous as a Jew in persecuting the Christians, even when he himself killed God's servants and would have rightly received God's vengeance, instead, he received God's grace and forgiveness. And God offers that same grace and forgiveness to you and to me. Because he is a good and a gracious king. As Romans 5.10 tells us, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And as a result, brothers and sisters, there is a reason why Paul can say in Romans 12.19, to never avenge yourselves and to let God's vengeance be the final say. 
You see, the reason Paul can say this to us, the reason that, that he can tell us to not seek after that vengeance in this life, is because he trusts that God is the one who will ultimately bring about final judgment on the evil and the wicked. And so that means that when we experience sin or offense against us in our lives, we can actually extend forgiveness to others because we know that that cost is going to be paid. It will finally be paid. And we can trust in that. And we know that God will do that. And that penalty will either come about in his righteous vengeance on evil and on that person or in his gracious salvation of that person. And because we know that we are deserving of vengeance just as much as anybody else, that as we grow in, in our walk with God, as we're in knowing him, in knowing what he is like, that he grows within us a delight in the grace that he shows to others. You see, as Christians, when we experience that kind of offense, something happens in our hearts where our desire is no longer to try and get back at them, to try and get that vengeance, to get our pound of flesh. But it is to cry out to God that He would extend His mercy to them, just as He has shown it to us. That is why Paul can say, Do not seek your own, but entrust it to the Lord. Even when he shows it to somebody who has done us great evil. How do you view the vengeance of God? Do you see it as part of God's salvation? Does it enable you and give you hope to extend forgiveness and grace to others? Or is it an uncomfortable part of Christian theology that you'd rather leave behind or keep quiet? I hope and pray that as we meditate more and more on God's vengeance and His grace, that we might see the beauty of it. And I pray, pray that we would see the beauty of it supremely in God's anointed king. The one who wouldn't be crowned as king as a result of a coup d'etat. But who would be crowned as king as a result of him laying down his life. And that brings us to the final point. The final king. Even though Jehu was God's anointed king who would carry out his will, that didn't mean he was good. He did obey God and was zealous for the Lord. He did what he asked him to do. But in another reminder of what we saw last week, in God's providence over the actions of evil people, Jehu still is a sinful king himself, as 2 Kings 10, 28-31 makes clear. And that's because Jehu is not the final king. In verse 11 of our passage, Jehu, who is perhaps a little bit confused by what's just happened, or maybe he's still processing it, he comes out of the inner room and he returns to his commanders. And they all think he's crazy, you know. This young disciple that has come and demanded to see him and taken him off and, and just legged it out the door. 
So they think, what did, what did this mad fellow, what did he say? And to be honest, I'm not really sure that they really do think he's mad because, you know, they press him on it. But interestingly, there's, there's certainly a trend in the Bible that, you know, shows that prophets were often seen as mad, as crazy, depending on what God asked, asked them to do or say. That's certainly a regular feature. And I mean, that, that still holds true for us today. Christians these days, we don't have to make food that has been cooked on dung, as Ezekiel had to do, or lie on our side, or walk around naked. But certainly the things that we believe in, I'm sure you feel this today, the things that we say, the things that we hold to as true from God's Word, that we are called to speak into our society, are often seen as mad. And even if people think it is crazy talk, like these commanders did, well, we can continue to pray that God would open their eyes to see the truth. So this happens and Jehu needs to uh, come up with a response. Can you imagine what would have been going through his head? This young man has just come, told you you're about to be the next king, and you're about to walk into a room full of the current king's commanders. What are you going to tell them? I bet his mind was racing, thinking about, hang on a second, just, just looking around the room, who is going to be with me on this, and who am I going to have to take care of if they don't like what I'm about to tell them? I reckon this might actually explain why he's a little bit evasive at first. Oh, what a, you know the fella in his talk. You, you know him. He's that crazy, one of Elisha's dudes. Yeah, he's just a crazy kid. But of course, the commanders don't buy it. Maybe he still had oil on his head. He didn't realize. Maybe, you know, just, you could just tell that something serious had happened. Either way, the commanders press him and he gives in. He says, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. I don't know about you, but in my mind, the way this scene plays out, he says that with a, with a hand on his sword and with just a very careful eye. I think at part, this is, this is the reason why the Sorry, in part, I think this is the reason why the Bible notes that in haste, the commanders suddenly, very quickly, put their cloaks beneath him and blew a trumpet and said, Jehu is king! Because they thought, you know, we've got to make a decision pretty quickly about this. Who is our allegiance going to be to? And so it is with God's anointed king, King Jesus. See, he also seeks nothing less than allegiance to him, and he calls you to do that today while you still can. As he says in Matthew 10, 32 to 33, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, where is your allegiance? Just as the people of England needed to declare their loyalty to the Queen, so Jesus calls His followers to do the same. 
And interestingly, Jehu's commanders actually showed their commitment to him by placing their cloaks under his feet. Does that look like a familiar image? Seen that before? We actually see this in the Gospels, uh, such as in Luke 19.36, where Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem and the people do exactly the same thing. They spread their cloaks on the road for him to ride on. It is a symbol of their recognition of their submission to the king. But instead of riding to a military coup and taking the throne, taking Rome, becoming the new Caesar, like most of the mob would have wanted him, Jesus instead rode to Jerusalem to his death. And just as Jehu's commanders proclaimed, Jehu is king, in recognition of the fact that God had anointed him, so Jesus' disciples in Luke 19 recognize who he is, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus, God's anointed king, carried out God's will. And he did so that you would recognize that you should rightly receive God's vengeance, but his loving and gracious offer to you is that that he has taken that vengeance upon himself. And what he offers to you instead is forgiveness. And friends, just as the commanders realized that they needed to make a decision, let me urge you to consider the urgency of this decision. Because Revelation 6.10 makes it clear that God will rightly avenge the blood of His servants at the end of this age. And that could come at any time. Tomorrow you may meet the King. Tomorrow all of us may meet the King. And if you do, Will you rejoice at seeing his face? Will you rejoice at knowing his forgiveness? Or will you tremble in fear in anticipation of his vengeance? And brothers and sisters, for those of us who have turned to, to and trusted in God's anointed king, this last verse from our passage reminds us of the great commission that our king has given us. We have been called to proclaim the kingship of Jesus. That is our charge. That is our responsibility. Will you take, undertake that charge even when the room is intimidating? Will you undertake that charge even when it seems like it is against the majority and it sounds like madness? Will you undertake that charge confident and trusting in God's anointed King, knowing that He will accomplish God's purposes in judgment, and in salvation. Jesus is God's anointed king, not just for a period of time in history, not just for a few decades, not just to bring about temporal judgment and salvation, but to bring about final, eternal judgment and salvation. He is God's final king. 
Friends, even if the fountain of youth was found and Queen Elizabeth lived for 2,000 years, you know, like, I think it's possible. It would still pale in comparison to the reign of King Jesus. His reign will outlast every monarch in human history. And he will one day return to finally avenge and save his people. Forever. Will you devote yourself to his kingship in your life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your anointed King, King Jesus. We thank you that he came to carry out your will, to create a people for yourself, born not of man, not of flesh, but of the will of God, by your Spirit. Father, help us to live in submission to our great King. We ask these things in His name. Amen.